pray and then I'm going to dig into lesson number three. I'll start with a couple questions that I got emailed to me and then we'll dig in. Let's pray. Lord, please guide and direct our conversation. Give us um, clarity of thought. Pray that all that's said would be in accord with your word and with the spirit of humility that we would apply it and just give us, again, clarity of thought as we navigate a difficult situation or a difficult topic, even personally to understand at times as we experience uh, the various temptations and sins and things that we do as, as fallen people. Lord, thank you for Christ and for the salvation we have in him, and I pray that we'd always be pointed to him and everybody would be pointed to him as our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're on statement three, but I got a couple questions. What we're doing with questions, if you have something that you would like to ask, email me that during the week, and then I'll incorporate it in the introduction for the next week. That's a way to manage time better. And also, if there's multiple questions that are similar, I can um, hone them into something that uh, captures all of those instead of answering the uh, similar questions. Um, one question I got was, what do I do <clears throat> when my employer is asking through surveys what my sexual preference and gender and identity are. Um, and there is an, uh, the person who told me this said that there is an, uh, uh, an option to not answer if you don't want to. Now, this topic, that, this comes up a lot from people asking me um, or telling me things that are happening to them in their workplace or in school, if they're in university or whatever, um, how they're handling some of that. So I'm, I'm not the wisest person to give that advice because I'm not in the real-time situation like many of you are. So I come up with my answers by asking a lot of wise brothers and sisters in the midst of us who are dealing with some of these things. And I try to apply biblical principles too, of course. But some of these, the answers to these things are not really explicit. They're a little challenging and they depend a little bit on the ex exact situation you find yourself, the relationship you have with your um, employers, employees, uh, fellow workers uh, at your school, your teachers. So a lot of it um, depends on the relationships you have built already and, and that, those kinds of things. But in a case like this, um, first of all, conscience should be your guide. You shouldn't go against your conscience if it really tweaks you to have to fill out a survey like that and answer something like that, then go with it. If they say no answer, then you give no answer. It's up to you. That's your conscience. But on the other hand, there are occasions that might come up in this era we're living in where there's an opportunity for testimony to the truth about yourself and they're just simply asking you what your preferences or gender identity is and you just answer it just uh, just answer it plainly. I mean, it's as simple as that in some cases. Um, it just depends on where your conscience is with it and how it's going. Talk to your employer about it if you have opportunity, if that's realistic. Um, so it's, it's a lot of variables go into how you might answer this. Um, but perhaps you just say, hey, I'm, I'm a married man and I've been married for for, to my wife for 10 years. Boom, that's the answer. I don't know why companies want this information necessarily. I think they're trying to gauge uh, you know, how woke they're supposed to be or whatever they're supposed to do to adapt to what other companies and corporations are doing. But just for your personal integrity, um, go with conscience. Be careful on how you respond in the sense of don't be disrespectful. Be truthful um, and communicate and talk with your, uh, whoever you can talk to uh, about what their expectations are. Not to mold them necessarily, just to get a picture of what, what their reasoning is for it. Who knows what will develop in the years to come. It probably will get worse, not, not better. A second related question I got from several people verbally and a couple emails, it was something like this. People at my workplace or my school are asking me to use pronouns for them that do not match their biological sex. Uh, or my company is requiring me to use pronouns that don't actually match the biological sex of the people. This is a challenging thing, and Christians will answer it two different ways. So I'm not going to say exactly 
um, what you should do. I'll just try to describe what I think I might do. I do have one case that had happened to me um, to, to interact this way. Before the COVID, uh, the heat of COVID, I play pickup hockey with a bunch of guys in town here, and they play in different ranks and such. It's, it's uh, street hockey, so don't worry. I'm not going to hurt myself worse than I could do so on foot, uh, which is pretty bad, by the way, I've done in the past. But at any rate, I play pretty regularly with these guys. Um, anyways, no joke, after COVID, one of them came back as a woman and wanted to be called Jenny and um, very masculine individual, but completely transitioned to be a girl, um, yet still married to a woman and told everybody wanted to be called, you know, Jenny. And so my take on it is I just call him whatever he says I should call him, but I just don't use pronouns when I'm interacting. We don't interact very closely other than going in and out of the game and such. But um, I just try to avoid, I just, just don't use pronouns. I just try to call the person by the name they ask to be called by, and that's just generally how I would do it. However, I think there's occasions in the workplace where you can use whatever pronouns they're telling you to use, recognizing you're not talking to people with Christian values here. This is a situation where we're living in the era of the psychological person or the expressive individual, as Carl Truman put it. He explains in the book that the way the secularist thinks now is that those things are not depicted as basic as the scripture tells us and biology tells us. Biology is not even the rule anymore. It's psychology is the rule. So whatever you think, that's what your reality is. And if I tell you that's my reality, you should honor it. You know, you have to weigh that kind of thing. Maybe just, again, don't use pronouns if you can get away with it. Just call someone by their name. Um, or, uh, in communication and with respect, you know, you're using the term. It's not because you're scared of, the, of getting persecuted, but because you're just trying to be respectful in a, basically a pagan environment. It's not an environment that's a Christian environment. These aren't Christians telling you to call you this. So you have to kind of weigh it and decide. You don't need to be insulting out of the gate with this as soon as it's presented to you. That would be my take. And one of the biblical examples I think of often in these kinds of questions is in Acts chapter 17 when you remember Paul goes to Athens and they all think he's, he's some kind of a shucks, you know, some kind of a shuckster or huckster and he's just, you know, who is this guy? And they're all deeply steeped in the various Greek religions. And so it says in Acts 17, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within as he saw the city was full of idols. These people are idol worshipers. So Paul, standing in the middle of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, you're a bunch of losers who believe in idols, you dummies. It's not what he says. <clears throat> he says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. And he transitions. He doesn't insult them. He says, Hey, I see you're religious. I see what's going on. I mean, I can, let, let me tell you a little bit. So he develops um, an apologetic and then presents Christ. So I would say you elongate that in your relationships, especially in the, in the workplace or in school. And out of the gate, you don't have to come insulting like, I'm not going to call you he or she when you're really a she or, you know. Rather than that, you recognize, and if, they, if you've already established relationship, you already, they already know who you are, there's probably not likely that they're thinking you're agreeing, you're just being polite. And then you go along along the way, and as time presents itself, as you would anyways if you're a faithful Christian, you're looking for opportunities to represent Christ well. And the cases may come up, and you'll actually have a relationship that you can build up without compromising because no one's thinking that you're actually um, necessarily buying it. Or some aren't even thinking about it at all. It doesn't even register with them. Because their chief problem isn't, the pro isn't a pronoun issue. Their chief problem is they don't know Christ. And so how is it that we might present Christ to them without... without um, lessening our values or compromising the truth. And that can be, uh, you know, yes, they're very religious. Paul was right, but it wasn't a good religion, but they were religious and they took that as a compliment 
because, okay, he sees we're pretty devout, that kind of a thing. So think in some of those terms. Again, though, if it violates your conscience and you have, uh, the, the main issue is be respectful. You don't have to be rude towards people, but you might have to voice to somebody what your issue is, why you might not, why you find it uncomfortable to say. It just depends on your employer. It might mean you can't work there if it's that strong for you in, the, in, in your conscience. So it's a developing issue. We'll get more and more wisdom from other believers who are, who are in these settings. But I would give you that bit of thought to think, you know, to think about how to, do, how to respect people, maintain the truth, and look for the long-term way in which you can present Christ in work and school settings. Um, uh, certainly if someone asks you point blank, you don't lie, you tell what you believe. But oftentimes it doesn't happen that way. It's more like you're engrafted into a social setting or situation and there's a certain expectation. So I put that out to you. Give me some feedback if you think there's some other ways um, to handle that. Um, I, I, there's plenty of you that are dealing with this, and I'm always, you know, you'll learn more from a lot of you than you will from me on the everyday how to apply the biblical, um, the biblical teaching because you are right in the face of it all the time. And it's just happened so quickly in corporations and companies. And a lot of your companies don't know what to do. They're just, they're freaked out too. They're pushed. They're, they, 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 they feel pressure too, but they are afraid if they don't. So there's lots of fear running around. You don't need to be afraid. Just got to take it calmly and kind of work through without compromising any of your own positions or understandings by simply uh, trying to weigh out what this would look like if I was polite in the situation, and how might this in time be something to talk more about as the opportunity arises. So I leave that with you to begin with. Let's go to number three in our lesson, uh, in our 12, the 12 different topics. The topics are marriage, image of God, um, original sin, desire, concupiscence, Concupiscence is just a big word for how we discern what our desires are. And we'll spend a whole week on that next week. I'll touch it a little bit, or two weeks from now. I'll touch on it a little bit now, but it's a pivotal issue in this discussion. There's a Roman Catholic view of concupiscence, and there's um, the reform view, the way that I think is, is expressed well in our confession of faith. Um, but it makes a difference in how you analyze what our desires are, whatever they may be, sinful desires in particular. Um, and then temptation sanctification, impeccability, identity, language, friendship, and repentance and hope. It's all about human sexuality, um, and these topics all feed into or help inform how we should think biblically about, about all these things. Now, the, the statement before you, you have on your sheet, this is a statement about original sin and how we can understand the Bible's teaching concerning that sin of Adam and how we inherit it, and then how it, the, there are outworkings of what our sinful nature is that we can then interpret. We affirm that from the sin of our first parents, we have received an inherited guilt and an inherited depravity. From this original corruption, which is itself sinful and for which we are culpable, proceed all actual transgressions. All the outworkings of our corrupted nature, a corruption which remains in part even after regeneration, are true and properly called sin. Every sin, original and actual, deserves death and renders us liable to the wrath of God. We must repent of our sin in general and our particular sins, particularly. That is, we ought to grieve for our sin, hate our sin, turn from our sin unto God, and endeavor to walk with God in obedience to his commandments. Nevertheless, and now you probably notice the, the pattern, it gives the statement that's, that's bold and it's what the scripture says, but then it gives a pastoral or a, um, a, a compassionate application of that truth. It may be hard, but it's something we have to think about compassionately. Nevertheless, God does not wish for believers to live in perpetual misery for their sins, each of which are pardoned and mortified in Christ. By the Spirit of Christ, we are able to make spiritual progress and to do good works, not perfectly, but truly, 
even our imperfect works are made acceptable through Christ. And God is pleased to accept and reward them as pleasing in his sight. Whenever we focus on the sinfulness of sin, it can be a depressing thing. Um, that's why it's important, because the Bible does this carefully, is when we go there, we go to Christ from there immediately. It drives us to Christ. You can't be driven to Christ in the true sense without a real grasp on how desperate our situation is. And this is true for everybody. We're talking about human sexuality, but no one's left out of this. All of us can appreciate um, what corruption feels like, because we know it. We know it in, our, in ourselves. Even as believers who trust in Christ, we recognize that we still struggle with that original corruption um, that's in us, that still remains. So that's an important, uh, I think, pastoral point about how we look at this. And I think the statements in this paper do a great job of stating what's true, and then the, the, a, a compassionate application of it. Now, the first statement, the first sentence we affirm that from the sin of our first parents, we have received an inherited guilt and an inherited depravity. This is very crucial to Christian theology that we understand that Adam was our federal head. When he sinned, we are in Adam sinning. Now, similarly, Jesus is our federal head. That's why his righteousness could be credited to us. Um, that's the same way when we baptize a child. There's a headship that comes through the parents that recognizes this mark upon the child. I don't mean that they're automatically saved, but that the promises of the covenant are realized through the headship of the parents. Federal headship is a biblical concept woven throughout. And so in Adam, all have, all have fallen into sin, every one of us. Um, you were born innocent and then sinned, or conceived innocent and then sinned. You were conceived in iniquity because you come from Adam. We come from Adam. In Romans 5 captures this. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. So Romans 5 is your basic foundation passage for understanding original sin and corruption. When I say original sin, I'm about Adam's sin, and I'm t the corruption that comes from that is what we all have. We all, when we say, I have original sin or, or original or corruption, my nature is corrupted, that's what it comes from. And that is true of every person. So because of that, it it skews everything that comes from us. Our desires, our affections, even the things we think are pure are in some way affected by that corruption. And apart from Christ, they're wholly bent that way. In Christ, we still struggle with it. But now there's a, we're a new creation and God is doing a work in us. But this is an important foundational anthropology point about who we are. And it colors the whole way you see the world. The world in general will say people are generally good. They're good until, uh, I, I remember hearing um, one of the presidents saying, no one's a racist until they're taught to be a racist. Not true. You're worse than a racist without being taught any of it because that's who we are as corrupt people. We are originally sinful. And so that's an important feature. The movies may tell you that everyone's basically good. At the end, things work out because people are basically good. But that's not true. That's a lie. That's why certain movies that have come over the years, like movies like Pulp Fiction back in the day, kind of shattered that idea that we're really good. No, we're really all bad is what the whole movie was displaying. Breaking Bad is the same idea. The reason why there's something appealing about Breaking Bad is like this is what happens when someone really loses any conscience. And that's the way people go. That's how, that's the direction we go apart from intervention from Christ. Um, so 
So there are more true depictions recently about our corruption. They don't give Adam credit for it, but there's a a bit of a reality. I think just observing humankind uh, does this a bit. Okay, with that, Ephesians 2 also says, You were dead in trespasses and sins, which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. We all once lived. He's talking to Christians. Everybody at one time walked this way. By the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. So the desires of the body and the mind come from people who are children of wrath. They come from their outworkings of our corruption. So our desires and our affections, our lusts, they come from who we are. Um, this is an important feature or important aspect to understand. It's a true statement about our sin and corruption um, that we read because in Ephesians because God declares it and explains it. We wouldn't know it completely. We could observe it because um, it's demonstrably true, but we know it's true because God declares it to be true about our nature. Now look at the next part of the statement. From this original corruption, which is itself sinful and for which we are culpable. So a baby conceived in the womb is conceived in, in iniquity. So they're already, even though they haven't committed an actual outworking of that corruption, that corruption is condemnable on its own because it's in the first Adam and dead. Important. Which is itself sinful and for which we are culpable. Proceed from all actual transgressions. Um, uh, Proceed all actual transgressions. So this corruption is what uh, gives birth to all the actual, we'll call them actual transgressions. And actual doesn't just mean I go and murder someone. It's the hatred I have before I murder someone. That's an action too. That's very important. You'll understand why that's more important when we, get to, uh, when we get to the bigger concepts coming up. Trust me on that. Um, all the outworkings of our corrupted nature, a corruption which remains in part even after regeneration, are true and properly called sin. So our desires and our affections are properly actions of sin, and what we do with it are also actions of sin um, as well. Um, from our corrupted nature comes our desires, our actions, and our, and our affections. Um, this, is, this becomes a very integral part to understanding, especially uh, our uh, human sexuality and sin related to it. Now, um, you have a hymnal in your, in your pew. Turn to uh, the back of it on page 852, because a lot of what the statement um, expresses going forward comes from our confession of faith. If you have a version of the Confession of Faith that has all the Bible verses connected, uh, then you, you can go online and find that very easily. That would be helpful. Obviously, we don't have time to go through all those proof passages. But I do think it's important to have before you chapter 6. So page 852 in the back of your hymnals, chapter 6. And this is this great statement of summary of what the Bible teaches about sin and its, its impact. And this, this is what helps support the statement I just read. <clears throat> Look at a few of the statements and then I'll refer to them again. Our first parents, being seduced by the subtlety and temptation of Satan, sinned in eating the forbidden fruit. This their sin, God was pleased according to his wise and holy counsel to permit having purposed to order to his own glory. It's a bit of the mystery behind these things. Now we get into the meat of it, if you will. Verse 2, or uh, 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 section 2. By this sin, they fell from their original righteousness and communion with God, and so became dead in sin, and wholly defiled in all parts and faculties of soul and the body. We just cover this in Genesis. They being the root of all mankind, the root meaning the start, you know, the, the fountainhead, if you will, the guilt of this sin was imputed or credited. Uh, this is their federal headship. And the same death in sin and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity, that's us, descending from them by ordinary generation. 
from this original corruption, whereby we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good, and wholly inclined to all evil, do proceed all actual transgressions. It doesn't mean someone is as evil as they could possibly be, but, but what we do flows from our corrupt nature. It could be worse, but it won't be better. That's the point. Section 5. This corruption of nature during this life does remain in those who are regenerated. So even if you were born again in Jesus, you will still have a bit of the old man, as Paul refers to it. Um, you'll, you know if you had a problem with alcohol before, it didn't necessarily just go, some will say it just went away. Others have to, they just can't drink anymore because they will fall back into that. Even though they're regenerated and there's been incredible fruit in their life in many other ways, they have to, they have to avoid that because it will only lead to sin for them. And there are other things like this that you can think of that you still struggle with. Every one of us has some sin that, even though we're Christians, we love Christ. It, it's, it, it, it's, it's besets. It's, it, it's our pet sin. It's whatever it may be. Um, and we know this to be true. It doesn't mean you're not a believer. It just means that you're struggling against sin now, which the struggle is a, is a grace of God. But recognize that even regeneration doesn't change or doesn't take away the fact that you'll have these, these wants to go back to your sin. And although it be through Christ pardoned and mortified, yet both itself and all the motions thereof are truly and properly sin. So even though you are legally before God in Christ, uh, you, you, you will sin still in that position before glory. Um, yes, God still loves you in Christ, but you're sinning and that will break fellowship that will cause problems with you and others and you and God. And there's actual ramifications for those sins. They're not eternal punishment that's paid for Christ, by Christ, but there are immediate consequences to any sins we commit. They're damaging to us, to others, and to the name of God, our relationship with God. Verse uh, Section 6, Every sin, both original and actual, being a transgression of the righteous law of God, and contrary thereunto death by in, its, uh, by in its own nature, bring guilt upon the sinner, whereby he is bound over to the wrath of God and the curse of the law, and so made subject to death with all its miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal. So, the sixth section is, is one that drives anyone who's not in Christ, you want to go to Christ, because that's how you avoid um, uh, the ultimate penalty for sin, but even the power of sin gets released a bit when you are in Christ. So we'll come back to that, but I wanted to go over those sections because they'll be referred to again. Um, to the specifics, though, A.A. Hodge, who comments on the confession here, says, innate moral corruption remains in the regenerate, for those who are Christians, as long as they live. And all the feelings and actions prompted by this remaining corruption are truly of the nature of sin. So it is normal for you to be struggling against sin. And when we talk about human sexuality, someone who's struggling against sexual sin, that does not mean they're an unbeliever. They're struggling, though. That's the whole issue here, really, in the debate and the discussion, is about whether one recognizes something to be sin and struggles against it. They may fall. They may fall and struggle and get back. But they're, they're in Christ, they're, but they're struggling against it. That's, that's the normal Christian life. It's just particular sins have more impact in your everyday life and relationships. But we are all strugglers against sin. Um, part of why you come to church is to hear the words of the gospel again, to know again you're saved despite the fact that you're sinning. And you need more help to fight against those sins that you're dealing and battling with. That is the Christian life. That is normal. You're not unsaved because you're struggling against sin. Um, and the conviction you feel is because God loves you and that sin will only lead to hurt you more and hurt others more. And so we want to mortify it in our lives. And with God's help, we can see victory in this life to some degree over some of that. Not all of it. Uh, but these are important, realistic notes for us to grasp as Christians as we endeavor to live the Christian life in Christ. Now, look at the statement again back on your half sheet. 
Every sin, original and actual, deserves death. Original means just the state you're in, and then actual, your desires, your actions. Every sin, original and actual, deserves death and renders us liable to the wrath of God. In Romans 3, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In James 2.10, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. And back to the sixth statement that I just read from the confession. Every sin, both actual, original and actual, being a transgression of the righteous law of God and contrary thereunto, uh, thereunto doth in its own nature bring guilt upon the sinner, whereby he is bound over to the wrath of God, the curse of the law, and so made subject to death with all misery, spiritual, temporal, and eternal. Uh, so in theological language, if you will, actual sin is distinguished from original sin that we inherited from Adam, but we recognize them both as sin worthy of God's uh, punishment. Um, Burkhoff says in his theology, the term does not merely denote those external actions which are accomplished by the means of the body, but also the conscious thoughts and volitions which spring from, our, uh, from original sin. So desires, thoughts, actions, lusts, sinful acts. Think of what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember what he's talking about? Because people, the Pharisees, what were they doing? Hey, I can think whatever I want to think as long as I don't actually do it. I can commit adultery in my mind all I want as long as I don't actually commit adultery. And so Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. It's your desire. It's your heart too. That's where the sin is. That's the, that's that flows from your original corruption. And then it works itself out in a more severe thing. Yes, it's more severe to act it out, but it's still sinful to have the thought. Um, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in her heart. Now, I'm saying all this to all of us to realize the extreme sinfulness of sin has to be seen for what the Bible says it is. But what will happen is you will, you will go to Christ. You'll know it's true, and you'll go to him for his righteousness to be credited to you because you don't have any of it. You'll have no part that can lay boast to any claim about righteousness in you. You know there's none there. And anything you do do that is righteous or a work that is right is because Christ has worked in you. It's he's done this work. He's the one that's made it right. It puts all the focus, all the dependence upon Christ for everything. And you can never overdo dependence on Jesus, ever. And that's important. That, that's where you'll start to see victory. These things that we're struggling against, you won't begin to see in reality until you grasp that. I think that any pastor could work guilt on the congregation really hard. I, I can't believe you all are cheating in your taxes like you are in, in, and just going off on you about something that I think you're doing, whether I know it or not. You're a bunch of gluttons. I saw you at the buffet the other day, and I can't believe what it... Okay, you'd be like, I can't believe my pastor said that. And for like a week, you would be guilted into not doing whatever it was. But what would it be like eight days later? It'd be worse. You would fall harder. The only answer to actual victory, for, to sin, to struggle against it, is more of God's grace. It's more of the realization of who we are in Christ. More of what he's done for us. What he's secured in us. How he doesn't reject you even when you sin. The more you know that, the more you actually, when you're faced with sin the next time, I don't want to do this to my Savior. What he, what he did for me. I don't, that's way more motivating um, than, than this guilt idea that people around me, I can't believe, or I'm not saying thank you properly to God if I don't do this. Not that either. That's not what I mean. Anyways, so much more can be said, but this is a very important practical point for our everyday living. The next statement, we must repent of our sin in general and our particular sins particularly. So we make a general 
admission of our guilt before God, but then as we know, as they're aware to us, the particular sins too that flow from this. In the Confession of Faith, chapter 15, uh, section 5, men ought not to content themselves with a general repentance. Yeah, I'm a sinner. But it is every man or woman's duty to endeavor to repent of his particular sins particularly. So it's kind of a demonstration in our liturgy. We do a, a confession of sin that has general and particular elements to it as a model for how you might pray to the Lord privately. Um, so we, we corporately confess our sin as a people. We're a sinful people, prone to forget and so forth, slothful and doing good. And then sometimes the prayer will give specific prayers that we could all lay hold of, like, yes, I remember lying this week or whatever it is. And so there's particular sins. Similar to us, we should be, have a humble demeanor before God, knowing we're sinners, but then start to think of some of the specific sins that you want to bring before your father. Who, and this is, this is an, uh, repentance. This is a regular activity in our lives. The next statement, this, uh, that is, we ought to grieve our, for our sin, hate our sin, turn from our sin unto God, and endeavor to walk with God in obedience to his commandments. In the second section of chapter 15 of the confession, by it a sinner out of his sight and sense, not only of the danger but also the filthiness and odiousness of his sins, as contrary to the holy nature and righteousness and the law of God, and upon the apprehension of his mercy, his mercy in Christ, to such that are penitent, so grieves for and hates his sins as to turn from them unto God, purposing and endeavoring to walk with him in all the ways of his commandments. So by repenting, by praying re prayers of uh, repentance, um, the process itself helps us to turn away from sin. Calvin uh, defined repentance as the true turning of our life to God, a turning that arises from a pure and earnest fear of him. And it consists on the mortification of our flesh and the old man and the vivification of the spirit, the spirit killing sin and the spirit enlivening us. That's, that's, the, that's what we depend upon in the Christian life. Again, this is the, the description of the whole of your life, every day of your life, in the, the outworking until Jesus comes, till glory, until uh, glorification is realized. The section that comes next in this third uh, statement. Nevertheless, this is that more, if you will, compassionate or pastoral application. Nevertheless, God does not wish for believers to live in perpetual misery. I mean, everything I said is very heavy. And God does not want you to walk out here with your head hung low. That's not the point. Um, this is why we end with the Lord's Supper, by the way, because it's a reminder that our sins are forgiven and taken care of. We should be, we should be happy about that. That should be something that we celebrate in the Lord's Supper. Um, God does not wish for believers to live in perpetual misery for their sins each of which are pardoned and mortified in Christ. They're really dealt with in Christ. You can go from a place of legal um, righteousness before God. Not just legal innocence, righteousness, because you bear the righteousness of Jesus. And so when God looks upon you, um, in the ultimate sense, he sees his son whom he loves and will never reject, and he'll never reject you. If you're hiding in Christ, meaning you rest in him, yes, it's Jesus who's paid for my sins. It's his righteousness that I claim. He's my mediator. In the fifth section of that uh, sixth chapter of the confession, this corruption of nature during this life does remain in those that are regenerated. And although it be through Christ pardoned and mortified, yet both itself and its, the motions thereof are truly and properly sinned. Even in that heavy chapter, there's an acknowledgement that they're pardoned through Christ. And so we want to go back to that reality when we um, spend too much time focusing on the sinfulness of sin. By the Spirit of Christ, it says next, we are able to make spiritual progress and to do good work, do good works, but not perfectly, but truly. So as a believer, you can do things that are spiritually, truly beneficial, whereas you could not before you were a believer. 
And it's because they're sanctified by God. They're sanctified by your union with Christ and the Spirit's work to have you produce those things. And though they're imperfect, there's still something about them that's truly a spiritual fruit that you can know for sure is happening. So the small victories that you are experiencing in your walk, those are huge pieces of spiritual evidence and fruit. Um, even if your desire isn't as strong as it used to be towards that which is sin, that's a bit of fruit right there. Or you had victory one time over your temper where you would not have had it before. Don't discount what that means. That is not something you could have produced as a natural man or woman. It had to be spiritual. And we recognize that to be at work in your life, despite how heavy sin is and how impacting it is, there are victories and improvements in your life that have happened. God is rooting sin out in your life. He's so gracious, though, that he doesn't show you all of it. You feel heavy because you know more of it than you knew before. But there's more still that you don't know, and he's gracious to not let it, you see it all. And he gives you glimpses of victory that occur that can only be credited to him. And this is a great encouragement, I hope, to you to know this is true. In the Westminster Confession, chapter 16, verse, uh, section 3, their ability to do good works is not at all of themselves, but wholly from the Spirit of Christ. So if a good work occurs or you do something, you know it's not you, that's God working in you. And that they may be enabled thereunto, besides the graces they have already received, there is required an actual influence of the same Holy Spirit to work in them to will and to do of his good pleasure. Yet are they not there hereupon to grow negligent, as if they were not bound to perform any duty unless upon special motion of the Spirit, but they ought to be diligent in stirring up the grace of God that is in them. It's that, that balance that people talk about, predestination versus responsibility. We're responsible to obey what the Word says, to go after it, to, to engage and act. Now, when we look back upon it, we see how things occur. We recognize that the fruit's given by God, but it doesn't mean be passive. It means jump into obedience, uh, follow after God in the struggle. And as you look back at it, you recognize the hand of God upon it, but we're not to be lazy about our endeavors. Turretin said, we must distinguish between truly good and perfectly good. We have proved before that the latter cannot be ascribed to the works of the saints, the truly good, on account of their imperfection, uh, the imperfection of the sanctification that remains. But the former is, is rightly predict, uh, predicated of them because although they are not as yet perfectly renewed, still they are truly and unfeignedly renewed. So I said that wrong. They, the perfectly good can't be accomplished, but the truly good can be accomplished, and the truly can be accomplished because it is uh, predicated not on us, but on the work of the Spirit working in us. So it may be imperfect, but it's still truly good. That's what I mean to say. In this last statement, even so, or one of the last statements, I should say, even our imperfect works are made acceptable through Christ, and God is pleased to accept and reward them as pleasing in his sight. And that's back to that sixth section of chapter 16. Under, or, or, uh, yeah, 16, you don't have that before you, but it's, uh, it's, uh, it says this, notwithstanding the persons of believers being accepted through Christ, their good works are also accepted in him. Not as though they were in this life wholly unblameable and unreprovable in God's sight, but that he, looking upon them in his son, is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, although accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. That should absolutely excite all of us. Because even the smallest thing that, that is done, um, for, done that's good is because God's granted as such. So one practical way, when you're looking at your children's life and they're showing signs of obedience that weren't there before, celebrate those things as real spiritual victories. They may seem small, but they're, they're bits and pieces of the work of God showing themselves, displaying themselves in their life. And you know it true in your own life as well. 
um, as imperfect as our obedience is, in Christ, we have obedience that's acceptable to him because it's through Christ. And that should encourage us in the struggle. You won't, um, you're no longer under the slavery of sin as a believer. But you do know that sin is powerful, and though God has lifted the power in Christ, it's still heavy and it's a struggle we have to fight against. That's the true reality of our experience, the true reality of everyone's experience. So be encouraged by what Christ has provided for you and is doing for you now. At the same time, be mindful that we are in a struggle. Uh, you are in a struggle. You're not an unbeliever because you're struggling. Uh, the fact that you are struggling is usually the first thing I could tell you shows me you are a believer. Because believe, someone who's an unbeliever is not struggling against these things, except for if it's causing them some immediate acute pain, I got found out kind of a thing. But by and large, the unbeliever is not looking, uh, d- doesn't have that sense of conviction. Uh, but a believer knows it to be true and they struggle. Now, as it relates to the human sexuality, one of the most difficult aspects that we find ourselves in the church is, if someone is in that sexual sin, um, and the world's telling them it's okay and they'll be happy, who do they blame if they're not happy? those hyper-Puritans who are saying that you shouldn't act out on those. That's not why we're saying it. We're saying it because it's not aligned with God's design. You're not pursuing what his design is for you for joy and satisfaction, and it will lead to complete depression and discouragement and such. The depression and discouragement is not coming because someone's declaring the truth about it. It's because it's not who you're made to be. It's not who you're designed to be, and you're following after it, and it will lead to destruction. But we find ourselves in a difficult place with this culturally where you can easily say that about other sins, like murder or lying or coveting, uh, adultery even. But when you talk about something now that's so normalized and it's, we're forced to celebrate it, it makes it tough for a Christian when we say it because we're going to be blamed for why a person feels bad about themselves. Now, if we're jerks to them or not compassionate, I'm not talking about that. But I'm saying what we're doing in this groundwork is hopefully becoming so humbled by the reality of all of our sins that we're not approaching anybody's sin as worse than ours. So our demeanor should be humble to begin with as we express to the, the wider world the reason why pursuing these desires and lusts are bad are because they are a front to God, but they're also, they're also violations of our design in the way God's made us to be as people who are image bearers. That's, that's what our heart is about it, and people will be miserable if they find themselves pursuing that. It's not because we're holier than them, or they're unsavable, not that at all. But we do have our work cut out for us. It's a challenging thing. So we have to be as loving and humble as we can before we say anything, even more now than we've ever been before, at the same time holding to the truth. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for giving us a chance to dig into some really deep, heavy stuff. Pray for my brothers and sisters and they're navigating this world in which we live. Help us to be faithful to you. Help us also, though, to be compassionate and loving and humble, knowing and confessing our own sins, realizing our own sins, O oh Lord, um, but running to Christ and bidding others to run to Christ as well. Lord, we don't know what is coming um, in this area, especially in our culture, but I pray that you give us great wisdom to be wise about how to uh, proclaim, proclaim the truth and live the truth. And we trust you, Lord, that you, um, you will protect, that you will give us the guidance that we need. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.